by the power of the Holy Spirit working through word and sacrament. Then we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. My friends, it's just that simple. It's in the divine service that he's there for you, that he delivers the forgiveness. That's where he promises forgiveness will be. Uh, And so that's why it's so important uh, to be in church. We long that God would answer the prayer when we pray, deliver us from evil. Get me out of here. Get me out of this sin-filled world. That is Jesus Christ uh, who says, Do not count their sin against them, for my blood has paid the price for that. Now on 95.7 FM, it's Proclaiming the One with Pastor Clint Poppy and Pastor Adam Moline from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader, we are here to look at the upcoming readings for the week. Today we're going to look at the fourth Sunday in Advent. These readings sometimes get a little bit short-changed. We are so close and so excited about our celebration of Christmas that we don't want to wait. We don't want to prepare any longer, and yet we're still in that preparing mode. So, fourth Sunday in Advent, the introit. The antiphon is from Isaiah 45, verse 8 specifically, and the bulk of the introit are selected verses from Psalm 19. Vicar, take it away. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Okay, we almost have kind of a cryptic way of looking at the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus, which we will joyfully celebrate this upcoming week, Christmas Eve on Monday, Christmas Day on Tuesday. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Pastor, what is this a picture of when we're talking about the heavens and the clouds showering and raining down righteousness. I think this has a a picture that points us to the divine service where God distributes his gifts and gives them uh, and, and makes the sinner who hears his word and receives his sacraments righteous. Uh, you even have this idea of the earth opening up uh, and receiving those gifts uh, so that it might bear fruit and uh, that the plants that uh, receive the rain from above, uh, they grow fruit. And the same way when we receive God's righteousness uh, through word and sacrament, we also bear fruit in our lives. I think that's kind of the picture that this is uh, putting forth. I think that is the uh, right picture, and if I can get you to back up just a little bit from that picture, uh, before God can rain down or shower down his gifts to us in the divine service, God showers down and rains his gifts to us in a special way in, go down a little bit further, the bridegroom leaving his chamber and the strong man running its course with joy. Am I right, or am I uh, stretching things to see this as a picture of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ? I think it definitely is uh, a picture of the incarnation insofar as um, Christ does come down. Uh, God takes on human flesh uh, to earn forgiveness, to earn the righteousness for us so that it might be given and distributed to us. And all these things are connected. You can't have the one without the other. Uh, and so I think that is a, a good, uh, good way to see this particular text. Vicar, when we have talk of the incarnation. If somebody came up to you and said, 
I, I don't get it. You know, we say that word in the Nicene Creed. People talk about it in church all the time. When we are talking about the incarnation of Jesus, what specifically are we talking about? Incarnation literally means in the flesh. The incarnation is when Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God, literally takes on human flesh. Now 100% true God and at the same time 100% true man. The incarnation, God taking on flesh and blood, dwelling among us and for us. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. And on Christmas Day, we call it the feast or the festival of the incarnation. This is the big deal here. And in our introit, it appears to me that all of creation is celebrating this big deal. Now, Jesus comes for the salvation of people. He comes for the forgiveness of sin, human sin. Pastor, why in the world is all creation, the heavens and the earth and, and all these uh, various descriptors that we have in our intro, why is all creation celebrating, singing, leaping for joy at how God visits his people? When Adam and Eve fell into sin, uh, they definitely brought sin upon themselves, but they also brought curse upon all of creation. Uh, we see that in Genesis chapter 3, where um, God says that um, the uh, the earth will no longer just bring forth without thorns and thistles and uh, laboring away, uh, all those sorts of things. Uh, animals have to die now because of sin, their blood being offered as sacrifices uh, to cover guilt. And, and so all of creation becomes corrupt when Adam and Eve fall into sin. When the solution for that sin comes about, all creation rejoices then that the answer, the promise of the, the curse, uh, is going to be lifted when the, the promise arrives and, and begins his work of rescuing from sin, death, and the power of the devil. Uh, they have reason to be joyful. I want to I push you just a little bit on that, and I agree with everything you said. Um, when we die, we go to heaven. And we leave all this stuff behind. So what's the big deal that creation celebrates the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus? Am I looking at heaven wrong? Um, I think most Christians would say that when we go to heaven, the things of this world, the things of this earth, the things of this creation become irrelevant. Why is that a uh, poor way to look at things? Well, I... I mean, additionally, I think people, when they think of heaven, they just think we're going to be uh, ghosts up there or angels up there, but that's not really the case. Uh, God is going to recreate uh, heaven and earth. It's going to make it perfect again. Everything that was before that was corrupted and destroyed will be made new and well. And um, you can't separate this creation that's created by God and loves God and is good um, from worshiping God, and and um, I think I don't know. It's it's a difficult difficult thing to wrap our minds around. Maybe. Well, I think it is difficult to wrap our minds around because too often we have, like you said, this picture of floating around in the clouds, right. or when I die, I become an angel. Um, and I think there's a bit of a Gnostic in all of us because we we look at the, the body that we have or the suffering that we have or maybe even the world that we live in, tangible things as bad or evil or wicked in and of themselves. But it is sin, as you stated before, that has corrupted all of these wonderful creations and good gifts of God. It is sin that has brought about the suffering of body and soul and suffering in the world that we live in. Uh, tornadoes and hurricanes and cyclones and blizzards, uh, floods and fires and all of these devastating things here. All of creation is affected and all of creation longs and groans in anticipation of the great and glorious day of the Lord. When we realize that we are body and soul people, and we realize that God has given us this creation to enjoy, to live in, 
to love in and to um, really uh, live, move, and have our dwelling, then we can look forward to the time when our bodies will rise from the dead, when God will destroy heaven and earth as we know it and recreate a new heaven and a new earth. Body and soul people living as body and soul people in God's new creation. Uh you uh, you were absolutely correct when you said this is a difficult thing for us to wrap our mind around. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. And this is why sometimes Christians, uh, sadly, uh, shortchange the importance of the doctrine of creation. This is sadly sometimes why people shortchange the doctrine of the resurrection of the flesh. God takes on flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not ditch his body, his flesh and blood, his humanity at the resurrection, at the ascension. Jesus, second person of the Trinity, is true God and true man now since the incarnation for all eternity. And that teaches us, body and soul people, that we should treat the body with respect, be good stewards of creation, and at the same time look forward to and long for this new heaven and this new earth. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Pastor, um, you started out by talking about how this is done in the divine service. When we are talking about showering and raining down, can we make this a baptismal reference, and if so, how? I, I think you probably can. Uh, I'm always a little nervous of just making every time there's water, baptism. Uh, but uh, we have that idea that in the divine service where God's word is connected to water, that's where uh, faith is created, where we put on the robe of Christ's righteousness that is talked about here exa- also, uh, rain down righteousness. Um, and so there definitely is a baptismal element to it. Uh, I think, too, uh, the other picture we can all uh, see here is if we're standing out in the rain, we're going to get soaked and covered in the thing that's coming down. And uh, here, God is pouring down his righteousness as rain. And so in receiving his gifts, they cover us, they, uh, they, they make us completely and totally righteous uh, in appearance from the outside, uh, and with God doing it also from the inside as well. And I think that picture is here, here as well. Yes, and uh, while I too am a little bit nervous making a baptismal reference every time there is water in the Bible, uh, I'm not 100% nervous in doing that. Because uh, if you're going to err, err on uh, on the side of what is good and right and proper and salutary, and righteousness rains down upon people in the waters of holy baptism. We are made righteous as Christ delivers the goods, Good Friday and Easter to us, and God causes that baptism to sprout and grow. How? Faith. Faith in God, love toward one another, otherwise called good works. We need to take a short break. This is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the fourth Sunday in Advent. Don't change that dial. We'll be back. truly is the most wonderful time of the year. It's Christmas time. At Good Shepherd Lutheran Church, we would love to have you join us for our special worship services. Our children's Christmas program is Wednesday, December 19 at 630. You're invited. Come and hear the little children tell the good news and share the message of Christmas. On Christmas Eve, Monday, we'll gather at 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. Christmas Day, Tuesday morning, we'll gather at 9 a.m. And on Wednesday, December 26, we'll gather at 6.30 for 
the festival of St. Stephen, the first martyr in the church. It's a wonderful time of the year. It's a great time to be in God's house, hearing God's word and receiving God's gifts. So, for Pastor Clint Poppy and Pastor Adam Moline and Vicar Albert Bader, Merry Merry Christmas. Christmas. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Vicar Albert Bader, Pastor Adam Moline. We serve here at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We're looking at the readings for the fourth Sunday in Advent. In our first segment, we looked at the introit, Isaiah 55, verse 8, and a portion of Psalm 19, setting the stage, God coming to his people to bring righteousness, his people Hear it, receive it, believe it, and bear fruit. This message is not only for people, but it affects and transforms all of creation. We heard in our uh, little intro there a few uh, bars from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, one of the classic Advent hymns of all time, Emmanuel, God with us. We'll unpack that more on Christmas Day. Right now, we want to take a look at our gospel reading for the fourth Sunday in Advent from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 19 to 28. We're going to carry on our John the Baptist focus that we started last week, and we're going to carry that on right here and right now. Vicar, you want to take it away? This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Okay, we have some uh, marvelous words here from John chapter 1. This is the testimony of John. The testimony of John when Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Pastor, can you set the stage for us historically what's going on here in uh, this part of John chapter 1? Yeah, actually, that's a good timing for this particular text because just in the news this week uh, has been uh, the uh, the place where this probably happened has been covered with a minefield uh, since the, uh, the war in the 1960s, I think 1967, the Six-Day War. Yes. And um, this place has been covered in mines ever since then, and the churches that are there have been abandoned since that date, uh, not even touched by anybody, and they've just been removing the mines from that. But this is uh, probably towards the uh, southern end of the Jordan River, um, and uh, St. John is out there uh, preaching and baptizing, uh, and the people from Jerusalem have heard message uh, of what's going on there. Now, this is about as close to Jerusalem as you can get on the Jordan River. Uh, And so they send out a party of people uh, from the temple, from the Levites, uh, from Jerusalem to uh, talk to John, uh, to give answer to those who are in charge of the church back at the temple. Uh, They like to keep tabs on what's going on so that they... um, well, I, I don't know how to say it any other way than to repress those that disagree with them uh, or to uh, make sure the people are um, hearing words that they think are right. Uh, and so 
It's happening at the uh, uh, probably about 30 AD. Uh, it's kind of the uh, armpit of the Roman Empire, just uh, actually officially annexed before that had become a uh, client state under King Herod the Great. Uh, but his sons didn't do as good a job, and now it's more um, brought into the uh, the empire. And uh, so that's kind of a broad picture of where and when this is happening. Vicar, why why are the Jews, the Levites, and the priests, why are they concerned with this goofy madman who's out there preaching and baptizing? So what? Why did they even notice him? Well, they noticed him because people weren't coming into the temple in Jerusalem. They were going out to hear this John the baptizer and the message that he had of baptism for the forgiveness of one's sins as they confess their sins. And uh, so without the people coming into Jerusalem, I suppose uh, they were financially hit possibly a little bit by not bringing in sacrifices into the temple. And also um, when you're at the top of the totem pole and you are seen as an authority, sometimes it's not very fun to give that authority to somebody else. So they were jealous. They were jealous, and uh, how much the jealousy factored in, how much the loss of dollars and seats factored in, how much there was some genuine curiosity about the message that he was proclaiming. And you can tell by the questions that they asked him that, that they were thinking along the lines of a Messiah that God had promised to come. The, uh, I want to skip verse 20. Uh, and I want to come back to that because I think verse 20 of John chapter 1 is an extremely uh, significant text for us to look at today. Definitely. But I want to get to uh, the questions then. Um, they asked him, who are you? And then they asked him, are you Elijah? And then they asked him, are you the prophet? So, pastor, uh, let's take these one at a time. Elijah has been dead and buried for hundreds of years. Correct? Well, um, if there's a 400-year gap between uh, John the Baptist and Malachi... Uh, has he been dead and buried, though? That's where oh, I was... Oh, I'm sorry. He, he's been taken up to heaven okay. uh, in a chariot. Okay, but, um, okay, okay. My, not... my bad, my bad. Thank you for correcting me. Thank you for correcting me. <laughs> he's been dead and gone. Can you, can you, ha can we you can accept do that. that? Okay. Yeah. He's been dead and gone for hundreds of years. So why would they ask him if he's Elijah? Um. Yeah, he's been gone for probably 600, 700 years, somewhere in that amount of time, having been taken up to heaven. But there is a prophecy uh, that um, before uh, the Messiah returns, that Elijah would return, uh, and that Elijah would preach and prepare the way uh, for that Messiah to come. And so that's why they're asking. They want to know if he's Elijah that came back. He kind of uh, matches the description of Elijah from the Old Testament in several ways, and so they just want to ask and find out. Okay. So we have an Old Testament Scripture word that says Elijah will come and prepare the way. Now, God's Word doesn't tell us specifically if this will be Elijah dropped down from heaven in a fiery chariot the same way he went, or if this will be someone in the stead of Elijah or like Elijah, that, that part we don't have the details of. Uh, God answers that in this text very clearly. Right. And it, it is from uh, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, where it's written, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Okay. So, um, <coughs> Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. We've talked about that great and awesome day of the Lord already what is it is it the incarnation is it good friday and easter is it the second coming of christ and the answer is vicar yes 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 okay so uh we have this prophecy so we know that the uh the the jews the levites and the priests they're at least thinking along these terms of what god's word says regarding uh, the Messiah to come. And then they ask this question, are you the prophet? 
Are you the prophet? What's that all about, Pastor? Well, it actually uh, connects to our Old Testament lesson where uh, before Moses um, died or was taken up to heaven, whichever happened uh, before they entered the promised land, Moses promised that um, there'll be a prophet like him that will be raised up from among their brothers and that uh, his words will be in his mouth uh, and that they should listen to that prophet. And so now they're, they're asking, are you the prophet that Moses foretold? Okay, and that prophet that is spoken of in Deuteronomy 18, that has been traditionally understood as a messianic prophecy Correct. from day one. Yes. From day one. So this is no oddball, obscure quote from the Holy Scriptures. So it's, it's not a reference to you know, the prophet Muhammad or something like that. It is specifically asking, are you the prophet Moses foretold who is the Messiah? Okay, so we have these prophecies, these very clear prophecies from Scripture about a prophet and about Elijah's return before the Messiah comes. And so it should not surprise us that God-fearing Jews, believing the word of the Old Testament, would be paying attention and listening. You know, is this some crazy madman? Or could it be? Is he the one? And so they ask him, verse 22, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he answers directly and indirectly at the same time. John says, verse 23 of John chapter 1, I am the voice, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Okay, so first of all, I am the voice. Kind of sounds like the name of a uh, TV show where people are competing to see who gets the next record contract, right? Um, You know, I've never watched that show, so I don't know. (laughs) uh, I haven't either. I've just seen the advertisements. So... Uh, Pastor, what is the significance of John saying he is the voice? Well, I think John's being a faithful pastor here because he's not giving him his word. He's denied that he's uh, the prophet or the Messiah. And now what's he doing? He's driving them back to Scripture. He's uh, quoting for them word for word, verbatim, uh, from Isaiah chapter 40, where a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Um, he's, he's telling them that he's that guy who was prophesied by Isaiah. And his job then is not to toot his own horn or to talk about himself, but instead, as we kind of heard about last week, to point people to the Messiah, to Jesus, um, and to prepare his way in his ministry. Can you imagine the temptation that was before John the Baptist? He was immensely popular. Throngs of people were coming out from Jerusalem to hear what he had to say. He had followers, his own disciples, his own groupies, if we want to look at it that way. He baptized scores, hundreds, maybe even thousands of people in the Jordan River. And now he's got an opportunity to set the stage for himself, to become rich and famous and maybe even a member of the Sanhedrin itself. Vicar, what are your thoughts about how John handled this temptation? He did it perfectly by not allowing himself to shine, but pointing exactly to the one that they should be looking for this Messiah that is to come. And uh, I don't want to burst the bubble, but we've already said it in the end of that reading. He's pointing to one in the crowd that he says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie this man's shoes. He is the one that you are looking for, not me. And I don't want to steal any more thunder from the Gospel of John, but a little bit later in this chapter, not part of our text, but a little bit later in this text, We see that John is not only the voice, but John is the finger pointing the way to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We need to take a break. This is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the fourth Sunday in Advent. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back.
Talk Back, Sundays at noon on KNNA. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader, we're looking at the readings for the fourth Sunday in Advent. We would also like to invite you to worship with us at Good Shepherd. On each Sunday, we gather at 8 and 1030 with Sunday School for all ages in between. This coming week, we have special Christmas Eve worship services at 4 and 7 p.m. Christmas Day, Tuesday morning, we worship at 9 a.m., And on Wednesday evening, we have our Wednesday evening worship, as always, at 6.30. And this week, we'll be celebrating St. Stephen, the first martyr in the church. We're looking at the gospel reading for the fourth Sunday in Advent, John 1, 19 to 28. We've done, I think, a pretty good job of uh, setting the stage, looking at uh, how the Levites, the priests, and the Jews thought maybe this uh, John was more than some madman out in the wilderness, that they better find out exactly who he is just in case, just in case he is the one that is prophesied in the Scripture. John answers by saying, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Pastor, I want you to unpack that for us just a little bit. The voice. Yeah. The voice. Um that is that is a unique way to describe oneself, and when I think of voice, I think of words, I think of audible and intelligent conversation. Why is that such a, such a significant way for John to describe himself? Well, uh, that's the way that God works all the time in all the things that he does. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth by the power of his word, by his voice. Uh, The way that God creates faith is through the power of his word, uh, spoken through men uh, and and preachers and uh, uh, even just regular folks. Uh, God is always seeming to do something through his word. He baptizes. It's not just plain water, but it is the word of God in and with the water. Uh, The Lord's Supper, it's not just bread and wine. It is the body and blood of Jesus Christ in, with, and under the bread and wine. How? By the power of the word. Uh, Take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, this is my blood. And uh, so it it is not surprising to us as Christians that the way God would declare the, the Messiah is coming is through a word, through a voice, through someone speaking what God tells him to speak. That's the very office of prophet, of which uh, John perhaps is the prophet par excellence, the um, fulfillment of all other prophets who went before him, because he's the one who points directly to Jesus with his word. And as you mentioned in uh, later in the chapter, pointing out the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's, uh, it's beautifully ironic that... The Word, the eternal Word, the eternal Logos, takes on flesh and blood, makes his dwelling among us. Jesus, the Word incarnate for us, is our salvation, his life, his death, his resurrection. What does John describe himself as? The voice. And what does the voice speak? The Word, Jesus. I just think that is so cool and so ironic all at the same time. And I hope, I hope people can grasp the fact that uh, John meant what he said. Later on, we see that John says, uh, I must decrease. He, Jesus, must increase. And that is the attitude of every faithful pastor and layperson when they are the voice speaking about the word Jesus Christ. Now, I want to talk a a few minutes. I don't want to get bogged down here, but I want to talk a few minutes about the baptism of John. The baptism of John. Uh, 
John says in verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, uh, the one whose uh, sandals he's not worthy to untie. In other places in Scripture, we see that John was baptizing with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Pastor, what is this baptism of John? Uh, was it truly a means of grace, and do we still have it today? Yeah, this comes up in the book of Acts much later then, uh, when the uh, word is beginning to go out, the, the apostles run into some people who had been baptized, but John, but hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, um, that's the question then that gets that gets raised, and it's kind of a difficult one to, to go about answering again. Uh, but uh, John is baptizing with water for repentance, uh, which is a preparatory baptism, if you will. Um, and when Christ comes and uh, goes to the cross and dies, uh, baptism, uh, which has been prepared for by John, uh, becomes that much more important because that's when the Holy Spirit uh, is given in the uh, sacrament, when uh, it creates faith, um, and, uh, and it kind of finds its fullness there. John is taking something that the uh, Jews did all the time, and he is preparing it for when Christ comes and fulfills it. Uh, the Jews had their cleansing rituals. Um, there are called mikvehs all over Israel, uh, which are ceremonial pools that the Jews would go down one side, wash in the water, and then have to walk up the other side of the stairs because that's when they were pure. And if they would have touched the other dirty side of the stairs, they'd be impure again. They had all sorts of ways that the water would go in and out so that the water was always being refreshed. And uh, this is John taking that and preparing it for Jesus to jump in there and fulfill it in the true baptism that is uh, the baptism sacrament. I like to look at the baptism of John uh, the same way we look at circumcision yes. in the Old Testament. And I think for in my brain that is, that is helpful. Uh, the uh, baptism of John was truly a means of grace, but it was not an end-all to be-all. It was to point people to Jesus, who was baptized with the baptism of fire on Calvary's cross. Um, he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament ceremonial laws, including the ceremonial washings and circumcision. And these things now have been swallowed up and made new since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we don't need a baptism of John for repentance. We have repentance given to us in the gift of holy baptism, where we return to that baptism and the gift of repentance day in and day out, drowning daily and coming forth a new creation. We don't have the baptism of John anymore in the same way we don't have circumcision anymore because circumcision, the book of Colossians tells us, has been superseded and swallowed up in the sacrament of holy baptism. So I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the baptism of John, but people always have that question, and I would be remiss if we uh, didn't address it at least a little bit. Earlier I said we needed to uh, treat verse 20 in a special way, and I'm going to spend the uh, remainder of this segment looking at John 1, verse 20. It's talking about John the Baptist here. He, John the Baptist, confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Pastor, it seems like a little bit overkill here. He confessed, did not deny, he confessed. Uh, why is the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, making such a big deal about the confession? Well, that's the, um, the way that a faith can be judged, you know, uh, is by the confession. What does it say? And, and John is giving this great confession here, um, mentions twice that John confesses, and uh, that, that just emphasizes the fact that he is uh, pointing not to himself. He's being very clear that the important thing is Jesus, uh, not me. He is uh, telling everyone that this is what my faith is. I believe in Jesus as my Savior. Um, it is a confession uh, that uh, has a content of Jesus Christ crucified and risen to take away the sin of the world. Vicar, why can verse 
20 be said about or even said by any faithful pastor today? Because, like we've already been talking about, we do not confess ourselves. Even a pastor that's super energetic and maybe people like to listen to him and they think, oh, that's just the coolest guy in the world and he's bringing all these people. If he's bringing them in towards himself and his own skills or personality or whatever, and the people are infatuated with him, that does them no good. That man is a sinful, fallen human being. He is not able to save those listening to him. They can only be saved by confessing, as John did, that us fallen, sinful human beings are not the Christ, but Jesus Christ is the one true Christ, the Messiah sent by God to deliver us from all of our sins. Through him alone is life and salvation. And that's why any faithful pastor will not confess himself to be something great and mighty, but point his people towards the one who is great and mighty, our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastors are supposed to be replaceable. Uh, And when the pastor is replaced, the uh, confession is the part that remains the same. Uh, And that's, you know, when a pastor leaves, the next pastor should have that same confession and should uh, be able to fit in just the same way, even though he's a different man and different uh, personality and all that. The confession is the part that ought to stay the same. And that's why we judge our pastors based on the voice and their faithfulness to God and his word, rather than whether he looks good in skinny jeans or has a six-pack ab. Uh, uh, Pastor, we're about out of time here, but uh, with this with this whole understanding of how a pastor is to be judged by his faithfulness, how a faithful pastor points people to Jesus and not to himself, how does that connect in the divine service with a pastor who wears a robe and other vestments? How how does that connect to this particular verse? Yeah, a pastor wears vestments to hide the man, uh, to take away uh, the personality or the things that maybe make them unique so that the important thing that is seen or heard by that man is the word or confession that he preaches and proclaims. You know, if we uh, if we could dress uh, ourselves in a particular outfit we wanted to wear and, you know, uh, I picked, uh, you know, a $1,000 suit and a nice tie and, you know, boy, I would look really good that way. Whereas you come in with uh, holy jeans and you're kind of frumpy and... Uh, um, you know, it's not hard to imagine, right, Vicar? <laughs> um, you know, I, I resemble that. Remark. Then, then we're looking at who the person is, and, and we would all like to have that nice-looking pastor uh, instead of the frumpy-looking one. And yet, if we cover that man, we make them all look the same, and we uh, uh, we make sure that uh, the important thing is not the outfit that he's wearing, but rather the word and the message that he's speaking. Uh, that helps us to confess and not deny, but confess the truth about Jesus. Okay, one last thought. Why then, with all these things in mind, why then do most pastors preach from a pulpit? Why do we preach from a pulpit? Yes, instead of wandering up and down the aisle. So that um, the focus can be up towards the front, towards uh, where God's word and gifts are delivered, so that the focus can be on the word. The word can be heard by all without having to uh, turn around and face different directions or focus on other things. We want the word to be the most important thing, not the man, not the uh, the way that he moves or, or uh, uh, the outfit that he wears, just the word. So there is a reason behind why most Lutheran pastors wear a robe and preach from the pulpit is so that there are no distractions or as few as possible, and that it is the voice, the voice of Jesus Christ that is heard, and the attention is deflected from the pastor. It's not a personality cult that we're trying to start, but to be faithful to the Word of God. We've got to take another break. This is Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader, proclaiming the one. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back.
This is Pastor Clint Poppy and Pastor Adam Moline and Vicar Albert Bader. We would love to wish you, on behalf of all the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church, a happy, joyous, and Merry Christmas. We'd also like to invite you to join us for worship on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. On Christmas Eve, we have two opportunities to come and worship, one at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and the other one at 7 o'clock in the evening. And on Christmas Day, we also have a service at 9 in the morning. Please join us, won't you? We're located at 3825 Wildbriar Lane in South Lincoln. All of our services are broadcast live on KNNA The Cross 95.7. Merry Christmas in Christ Jesus. God's richest blessings to you this Christmas season. God's blessings. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader. We're privileged to serve at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We'd love to have you join us for worship, 3825 Wildbriar Lane in South Lincoln, just north of 40th and Old Cheney. You can listen live. Each one of our services broadcast on 95.7 FMLP here in Lincoln. If you're outside of our listening area, you can listen on the app or on our website. And check out our archives, www.thecross957.org, where you can hear Proclaiming the One, church services that are saved and archived from our Good Shepherd worship services at home in your hymnal and a variety of other self-created radio programs here at KNNA The Cross. We're looking at the readings for the fourth Sunday in Advent. In our first segment, we looked at the introit, Psalm 19 and Isaiah 45. In segments two and three, we looked at the gospel reading for the fourth Sunday in Advent, John 1, 19 to 28. John confessed, he did not deny, but confessed that he wasn't the Christ, and the Christ is to come, Jesus. John is the voice, and that voice proclaims the Word, the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, for us and for our salvation. The Old Testament reading for Advent 4 is Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen to 19, and that is the Old Testament text that prophesies the prophet that is referred to in the gospel reading. We're going to take a look now at the epistle reading for the fourth Sunday in Advent, Philippians 4, 4 to 7. Vicar? Uh, real quick, I just have to say, rejoice, rejoice, O Emmanuel. Uh, you timed that perfectly. Well, and that's one of the reasons why this particular text and other rejoice texts are so prominent during the season of Advent, because it is echoed in that refrain from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Rejoice, rejoice. Thanks be to God. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay. You know, we talk about a lot of themes in Advent, Pastor. There is a theme of preparation. There is a theme of judgment. There is a theme of repentance. There's a theme of John the Baptist who epitomizes many of these themes. We look forward to the second coming of Christ who comes to us now in word and sacrament and who came to us as a fulfillment of Scripture, the second person of the Trinity taking flesh and blood and making his dwelling among us. Emmanuel, God with us. We don't often talk about a theme of joy in Advent. Why is it appropriate for us to also talk about Advent joy? Well, um, the reason that God is coming into our world in human flesh 
uh, is to save us from our sin, to grant us eternal life, to give us peace, comfort, and joy, uh, a place where there is no sorrow, uh, no more starving or hunger, no more thirst, uh, no more sun beating down upon us, no more scorching heat, a place where we might live uh, in perpetuity with God, where he wipes every tear from our eye and provides all the things that we need to support our body and life uh, plentifully. Uh, There's great joy because God saves us from this sinful world and gives us a world that is yet to come. And uh, compared to anything else, what what other thing is there that there could be more joy about than living forever, than being provided for forever? That's the greatest message ever, is that God has given us eternal life. So we ought to find joy uh, and rejoice in that great, great blessing. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Um, you know, I have suffering. I have pain. I have sorrow. People that I love die. Uh, people let me down, sometimes even betray me. How can I rejoice in the Lord always? Because there are some very, very unhappy events and unhappy times in my life. How can I be joyful when I'm not happy? This present suffering cannot even compare to the joy that is going to be revealed in Christ Jesus. Uh, I think St. Paul says that, and uh, that's the reality. Um, you know, this, um, the worst thing that could happen in this world, let's, let's just say that you get cancer and it takes you six months to die, and the entire six months is dreadful, dreadful pain. How does that compare to eternity with God, standing before him, receiving his blessings and joy and peace. They, they can't compare. Eternity is so much more than six months of suffering with cancer. Uh, eternity, let's say you have a disease that uh, causes you immense pain your entire life for 80 years, or you lose a loved one for uh, 50 years, you're a widow or a widower. That can't compare to eternity. Eternity is forever. It is so huge, so amazing, so wonderful that our present sufferings can't even compare to that. Now, I don't want to make that sound like I'm lessening the suffering. Uh, We do suffer. We struggle. We do so with God with us and with the hope of what is to come ahead of us. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. What does that mean, Vicar? How is the Lord at hand? Well, it's something that we're celebrating at this very time in the Advent season, and we're anticipating anyhow. Emmanuel, God with us. God has promised never to leave us, never to forsake us. Even in the midst of all of our struggling and suffering that we go through here in this sinful life, God is still here with us. And that is why we can rejoice in him always. That is why Jesus became man for us so that he could dwell among us. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These promises need to be heard and reminded of, and we need to encourage others as well as ourselves with these promises because there are a lot of times when it doesn't feel like the Lord is at hand, doesn't feel like he's nearby to help. And yet that's exactly what God says. That's exactly what God promises. Now it says in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. When we are talking about being anxious, Pastor, the first word that comes to my mind is worry. How is rejoicing in the Lord always an antidote to worry? Well, um, or maybe I should say, is it? I, I would say it is, um, so long as we don't turn it into a work or uh, something, you know, so many people want to say, you just need to rejoice more and then things will go well for you. That's not the case. It, it, rejoicing is always a result of what Christ has done for us. And um, that rejoicing is the antidote to anxiety or worry because it tells us that um, whether I live or die today, I have hope and promise in Christ. Whether um, I get to eat my breakfast or something happens and I have to leave early for work, I have uh, hope and promise in Jesus Christ. Whether I can pay all my bills or not, I have the hope and promise of eternal life with Jesus Christ. Whether uh, I get fired from my job today or whether I get promoted today, I have hope and promise in Christ Jesus. Um, The joy that comes from being 
saved from having eternal life in Christ uh, overcomes all the anxieties and worries of this world. Um, it's not to say we shouldn't you know, uh, work hard at our job so we don't get fired. It isn't to say that um, uh, we ought not uh, worry about things in a little bit, but uh, we shouldn't be so overcome with anxiety that we can't function worrying about these things. We're th- in Christ's hands. I think there's a difference between concern and worry. And uh, I like to say that worry is when our concern becomes sin. Yes. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a smart God. And God's given us a brain. He's given us feeling, emotions. There are times when we do seriously need to be concerned about things. But when that concern falls off the edge and turns into worry, that's when we're breaking the first commandment, not fearing, loving, and trusting in God above all things. Vicar? I also think it's pretty interesting to think about anxiety and worry. Uh, sometimes when you're visiting with people and they are just crushed by whatever it is they are worrying about, uh, sometimes all they need is to get that off their chest, to talk about it. And uh, that's exactly what St. Paul is urging us to do. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Uh, Martin Luther uh, summarizes perfectly for us in the introduction to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, what does this mean? With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true father and we are his true children so that with all boldness and confidence we may ask him as dear children ask their dear father we have a god that has open ears and he is the one true god so he has ears to hear and he loves to hear from us and has promised to be with us that is very well said vicar i appreciate that uh and vicar's been teaching a uh, bible study on how to pray based on luther's little pamphlet of the same name it's available online it's in the public domain and uh, oh probably in a year or so those bible study sessions will be uh, popping up here on uh, KNNA 95.7 The Cross, and uh, Vicar will be long gone by then, but <laughs> it'll help you uh, think of him as you remember his voice. Verse 7, Pastor, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This whole text has been talking about rejoicing and not being anxious. And now all of a sudden, we have this phrase, the peace of God. How is the peace of God connected to rejoicing and not being anxious? Well, I think even to connect it to all the things we've talked about in our episode today, um, the voice that proclaims the word that points to Jesus Christ, um, when we hear that word, when we receive the word, uh, when we have the joy that comes from having received the word, uh, God's peace is there with us. And that's why these words are words that we oftentimes end sermons with. Um, uh, the prayer that we say at the end of the uh, sermon in Divine Service Setting 3 is almost word for word the same as this. Um, when we hear God's word, when we have the joy that comes from the word, we have the peace of God. And that peace is something that is so wonderful that we can't even comprehend it here in this sinful world. It uh, protects our hearts. Uh, it grants us Jesus Christ. When we hear the word peace of God, think forgiveness of sins. That's what Christ has given you. That's what he has won for you by his life, death, and resurrection. And that is what the Prince of Peace takes on human flesh and blood for, to bring you true peace, peace that the world cannot give. Vicar, would you wrap things up today by praying the collect for us, please? Let us pray. Stir up your power, O Lord, and come and help us by your might, that the sins which weigh us down may be quickly lifted by your grace and mercy. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 This is Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader, thanks for tuning in today. We'll be back again next week when we look at the readings for the first Sunday after Christmas. God's richest blessings in Christ. And uh, this year, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, go to church. Hear the Word of God. Receive the true gift of Christmas. Jesus for you.